January 26, 2023, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Well, welcome back, everyone. We are going to dive right into the podcast. No miscellaneous chit-chat this time because we actually have a guest as we mentioned last time, we're going to be talking to Jeremiah Russell with Rogue Architecture in Little Rock. And so we're just going to let him kick, his, kick it off and um, give us sort of the quick rundown of who you are and what Rogue does and go from there. Sure. Thanks, Larry. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. As you said, my name is Jeremiah Russell. I'm principal architect of Rogue Architecture out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, that's our home base, but we have a number of licenses. So we sort of traveling around the United States doing projects just about everywhere. We do uh, focus mainly on custom single-family residential homes, as well as a minor focus in historic preservation and multifamily and affordable housing. I've been in business since 2014. I've been a practicing architect since 2004. I think this is the perfect podcast for me because the, the term architect geek like, you know, I think if you looked up the dictionary, you might see all three of us, you know, posted right there. My wife gets really annoyed when we travel because I have to, I have this, this strange habit. I have to touch buildings. Uh, it's very sort of tactile, uh, sensory thing with me. So, you know, we were in, we were in Italy in March and yeah, I basically just touched everything. It was, it was a little weird. You know, socially awkward for some, not so much for me, but you know, yeah, <laughs> here, here we are. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done it to my husband walking down the street in London and we were passing some building, and I'm like, you just catch a glimpse, a glimpse through like one of the openings. I'm like, oh, cool. And I just turn and yeah. go that direction. <laughs> and that's right. Like, you know, that's right. You know, it's, it's, a, it was a bank lobby and there's like ATM machines, but I'm taking pictures of everything in the bank lobby because of, yep. you know, that happened to my son and I when we were in Rome. I said we were trying to find something specific, but I took to, so many wrong turns that eventually we ended up in this one place. And I just stopped. I was like, "Where are we?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, we, we, "We've never been here before, so we need we need to get back to where we've been." Yeah, uh, your father yeah. has you lost now. So, yep, that's right. That's oh, right. Too funny. Well, so. I guess maybe the obvious question for me is um, where did the name Rogue come from? Because it's funny being, yep. being following you on Instagram, you know, I think I bumped into you in San Antonio a couple of years ago and I couldn't think yeah. of your name. So I just yelled out Rogue <laughs> and you turned. Um, but where did the name I come from? Yeah. I I immediately turned around. I was like, who the hell is, what, uh, what <laughs> happened? Um, but uh, yeah, that was, that was actually really funny. So it's, it's a great question. It's a question I get asked a lot. So I guess the, the short and long story is when I originally went out on my own, I had no idea what I wanted the name of my company to be. The only thing that I knew for certain was I didn't want my name attached to it. So, you know, I didn't want it to be the sort of stereotypical, you know, Jeremiah Russell architect or, you know, Russell and Associates or, you know, some derivation thereof. And so, you know, I got my first few projects and, you know, quit my day job. And I was like, okay, I got to, I got to think of something. I got to think of it quick. And I just kind of sat down and I was, I was thinking about the kind of practice that I wanted to have. And uh, early in my career, 
I did, I did something that everybody tells you not to do every year for the first five years, I worked at a different firm and that was strategic for me because I wanted to learn different ways of doing the business of architecture. So I worked at a large firm and then I sort of progressively got smaller as my career progressed until um, I moved to Arkansas and worked at a firm that between the owner, his wife, the uh, secretary slash front office person and the one intern, like that was it. So there was like five of us total. And that was the smallest firm that I ever, ever worked with. So through all of those experiences, I, I was kind of thinking about what I was really trying to do. And what I was trying to do is build a practice that was outside of the norm, something that, um, that was not the sort of tried and true formula for an architectural firm, which is you start a firm and you hire employees and you get projects and then you hire more employees and then you have to get bigger projects and then you hire more employees and have to get bigger projects. And so it becomes this animal that you have to feed in order to sustain. And I never wanted that to be my business model. And so I was kind of thinking of that idea of this, this kind of out of the box, you know, outside the norm firm. And just the, the word rogue kind of came to mind. And, you know, I had, you know, I was thinking about it and I had to look it up because obviously when you're thinking of naming a company, you know, you don't want, you don't want the name to be disparaging. You don't want it to be, you don't want it to be vulgar or dirty or anything like that. And so I looked up the definition of rogue. And in addition to sort of the classic definition of a rogue being sort of a, a, a knave or a, you know, some sort of a social reprobate or something like that. It literally means someone who is outside the norm, someone who doesn't follow the conventions of a particular thing. And I was like, you know what? That's perfect. And so that's how rogue architecture came to be. And, uh, you know, as, as most, <laughs> as most people do in the 21st century, they, they immediately go to Google and they just, they Google whatever the, you know, company name is that they're trying to start. And ironically, there are five rogue uh, architects around the country. So I'm in Arkansas. There's one in Texas. There's one in Missouri. There's one in Colorado. And I think there's one in Oklahoma. So there's five total. Um, and it's, they're all sort of variations on the same thing. Rogue architects, you know, rogue architects and associates, so it's, uh, you know, we're, we're all kind of outside the box, mm -hmm. but creating our own box. Well, so is this the, you know, the plan now to just start swallowing out the other rogues? Should we get all, get all the rogues into one place and just kind of merge us to one big rogue company? Oh, gosh, I wish that would be awesome. Funny story about that. The, the, the rogue architecture out of Colorado. I know the, I know the owner via LinkedIn. And the reason I know him is because we get periodically we'll get calls for the other. So I got a call one day. It was for a project out of like St. Paul, Minneapolis. And it was, a, um, I think it was either like a, like a bank finance manager or somebody from the construction company or whatever who's calling me up asking for drawings. And after about two or three minutes, I, I kind of figured out, okay, th this woman is not wanting to talk to me. <laughs> this is not my, this is not my project. 
And so I had to, you know, have sort of a sort of an awkward conversation with her. I, I think you have the wrong oh, rogue architecture. We're we're out of uh, we're out of Arkansas, not Colorado. And she's like, oh, my goodness. Well, I, I just I just looked you up, uh, you know, just Googled rogue architecture. And, and you were the first one that popped up. And I was like, well, I'm glad we were first, but we're not the one you want. <laughs> and so so I ended up getting getting in contact with uh, with the owner of that firm and you know just periodically over the years we've sort of traded messages it's it's kind of become a funny thing yeah I'm I'm actually very uh, having having just started my own firm and just had to deal with the conventional going through the conventional naming like going to google go finding all the firm names that have been taken just going through that process i i i'm very keenly aware of just how yeah. difficult it is to yeah there's there's very little creativity left i think these days yeah yeah there really is because i mean so many people thought of, and, and, and you know, the, you'll get a good idea in your head and you're just like, oh, that's, that's really cool. And then, and then you, know, you Google it and, oh, well, three other people have already had it. And it's just like, ah. that's right. <laughs> yeah. So how did, so how did you get into architecture to begin with? Like, how, what was that process like for you? Oh, so that's, that's a really long story. Um, the Reader's Digest version of that is there was never a plan B. So I, I knew I wanted to be an architect from a very young age, about, you know, four or five years old. And uh, it just, it, it always stuck with me uh, from a very young age. So when I, when I started college, I applied to, I applied to one college, the Savannah College of Art and Design uh, in Savannah, Georgia, spent uh, six wonderful years in Savannah, five years at, um, at SCAD, got my master's degree and immediately went into private practice for a firm in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, that was, um, had the distinction of being the very first licensed architectural firm in the state. Uh, their, their corporate license number was a 00001 and they still maintain that license to this day. So that was a, that was a great firm to work for. I learned, I learned so much, um, especially from, uh, from my, my mentor, uh, Walter, who, uh, gosh, if he ever hears this, I, you know, hi, Walter, you did good. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I guess one of those rare people that I just, I always knew what I wanted to do. And I, I just went for it. You know, it wasn't something that came later in life. Um, I just, I really always knew that I wanted to design and build things. Hopefully that will last beyond me and, uh, and hopefully create a, a positive impact in the communities that I work in. Well, so, so you, you knew you wanted to be an architect. At what point did you know that you wanted to be work, work for yourself or have your own firm? Because I think there are, in, in my head, there are two camps. You have the people that are in architecture school who are going to spend their lives working for another firm. Then you have the people in architecture school who at some point know that they're not going to be working for anybody but themselves. Or with another partner, um, what's yeah. what was the what was the impetus to, to get started, or did you Absolutely. just know that from the start? So really, yeah, that's that's it. Um, it it was the it was the goal from the start. So it was it was one of two results that were going to happen. Either I was going to earn partnership in a firm, uh, or I was going to start my own firm and just do my own thing. I don't want to say I was 
forced into starting my own firm, but I guess to a certain degree, it, it kind of did turn out that way. I was working for a small firm here in Arkansas, and my boss at the time, he he basically decided he didn't want to be a boss anymore and merged his firm with another and just uh, sort of technological and philosophical differences. I did not want to work for that firm. And uh, so I ended up at a much larger firm for a very brief period of time, only about six months before I had enough uh, moonlighting work that I was like, all right, I can either, I can either do this for real or, you know, just kind of stay in my cubicle and be miserable. Obviously, I decided the former instead of the latter. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of how Rogue Architecture got started. But, but yeah, there was, you know, just going back to the no plan B, it was, it was never an option that I would just be an employee forever. So let's see, I'm 42 now. Uh, I was 30, 33, 34, somewhere in there, 33, 34. When uh, when I officially opened my doors and went out on my own, so it's been uh, it's been a great ride, and has at least so far no hope of slowing down. So I guess I'm pretty fortunate in that in that regard. Yeah. So so what was the conversation like with your wife when you said, "Okay, this is what's happening"? Oh yeah, that was tricky. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, so I've uh, at least since since our daughter was born in 2009, my wife has been a stay-at-home mom. So from 2009 on, I've been the, you know, the sole breadwinner of our family. And, you know, it was, it was interesting at the time because a lot of the, the peers that I was kind of relying on for professional support, they, none of them were in the same, same boat that I was. So when it came down to, really making that decision it became just a a decision between me and Aaron and we we just kind of had to figure it out so I I came home one day I was like look you know we've got these we've got these side projects but the the reality is is the moonlighting is starting to bleed into the daylighting (laughs) and you know like I was I was working for a larger firm and I was actually taking calls for my projects during the day like I would you know I'd have to like you know basically you know, sort of mentally clock out, like leave the building, like to take these calls. And it was just, it was starting to get to be a problem. And I was like, look, it's gotta be one or the other, you know, we're young enough that, you know, if this doesn't work out, Hey, I'll just get a job at another firm and, you know, we'll just figure it out. And we had a, we had a very candid conversation. And at the end of it, she just, she just looked at me with a, you know, the ultimate confidence. And she just said, yeah, we need to do this. And it was never, it was never, I like me personally, I needed to do this. It was, it was very much a we. And uh, she said, yeah, we need to do this and we need to see if we can make it work. And we need to take a leap of faith and, and just put our trust out there that, that this is going to be successful. And for the last eight years, she's been right. And so I'm, you know, which she'll even tell you, she's always right. It's super annoying, but you know, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with it. <laughs> yeah, that, that's every spouse. Yeah, I don't know. I'm always right. What are you talking about? Wow. Well, that's that's pretty. I don't say ballsy, but I guess that's the way way for it. I mean, you either do it or you don't. And you guys. Yeah, it was. Know. Yeah, it was. It was super stressful. I had. I I basically had three months worth of salary committed in contracts, and I was like, well, I've got three months to make this work. You know, basically, I've got three months to make the next three months work. 
And then, you know, I've got three months to make the next, you know, I just sort of operated on that model of always having at least three months worth of income kind of sitting in the bank so that I had three months to get three months more uh, worth of income. And it's been a pretty good model so far. Honestly, I'm taking notes because I'm... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because everything that you are saying i am currently going through and so like just the the whole like the 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 moonlight bleeding into the daylighting stuff the taking calls and having to check out like it, it's all it's all registering and i'm like i said i'm honestly taking notes because i i haven't quite got the the three month every three months thing going but i i've 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 had a steady enough work that it's it's been it's been okay so far (laughs) yeah well that's great i mean you know just as long as you're not living literally paycheck to paycheck you know you're you're doing the right thing so you've you've got you've got the work that you need to at least be sustainable for the for the short term and 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 that's and and that may tie into another question that we have because I know short term the goal is just okay where's that next project come how how or how are we gonna you know keep things running but when did you decide to continue that line of thinking but also branch out into other aspects like doing your own construction and and stuff like yep. that so getting into construction in addition to architecture was uh, now five years into that process, I will say was a little hubristic. The original impetus was, I was like, look, you know, these contractors keep screwing up my projects. They're, you know, they're not paying attention to details. They're not doing the work correctly. They're just sort of doing what they've always done, you know, which is, (laughs) which is to say, it was actually a funny story about that. I was I was inspecting a, a single family addition that I had done and I went out to the job site and I'm looking at the, at the construction details and I'm realizing that they never extended the, the sheathing down below where the uh, wood framing and the masonry wall intersects and they didn't put any, any flashing at the bottom of it to keep bugs and everything else from going up and into the house. And so I call up the contractor and I'm like, dude, you know, what, what is this? We need, you know, we need to fix this at, at the very least we need to install some flashing just to make it right. He's like, well, you know, I called my, I called my framer and he said, he's been doing this for 30 years and he's, you know, he's never had a problem this, that, and the other thing. I was like, well, 30 years ago, this wasn't right. So <laughs> we need to, we need to fix it. And, and that was, that was kind of the last draw for me. I was like, surely I can do a, a better job than some of these contractors. I think I've had I've had some successes and and failures in that. Like I said, it was a very hubristic uh, a view of what construction entails. Uh, construction is not easy, as we all know. It takes, you know, it it literally takes a village of people to to execute, and you have to have somebody at the top that that is really keeping an eye on every single moving part uh, to be successful. But that's really what the what the genesis of it was, and. I think I'm still learning. I think we've done a, a fair job in the homes that we have built uh, and we have more that are coming. And obviously we always want to do a better job, just like in design. We always want to be able to design a build, better building. I also want to be able to build a better building as well. But yeah, that was, that was really it. I just wanted to, 
I wanted the construction to be closer to what was actually designed so that that, that investment that these homeowners are making is, is really going to be the most valuable, the most functional and hopefully aesthetically pleasing for them. So do you run your construction business separate from your architecture or do you, do you bill yourself as a single entity like the design builds, like a lot of design build companies would? Yeah. So unless you're doing very large commercial projects, design build is an awful idea. I, I learned that lesson, unfortunately, the hard way. Uh, so yes, we have separate companies and the architecture, it, we, not only do we have separate companies, but we have separate contracts. So the architecture is a separate contract from construction. It's also a separate company. The money never commingles. Um, the insurance never commingles. That's that's I think one of the most important parts because a lot of a lot of insurance companies will not even insure an architectural firm that does construction as well. It's difficult and oftentimes expensive to find an insurance company that will that will write a policy for design and construction. It's uh, we we found it was actually cheaper to not only cheaper on like insurance side, but cheaper on the liability side. And then also on the tax implication side to, to separate those entities and have, have a true uh, separation or division of, of labor between them. So do you have someone who runs that part of the business for you, or do you sort of the man in charge for both? I, I know, I think your wife helps with the business aspect, right? Yeah, she does. She helps with a lot of um, office management. So, you know, a lot of the sort of paperwork, insurance, mm-hmm. you know, paying bills, that sort of thing. Um, I did have a, a partner in construction for a little while. He was a partner slash project manager. He, he was in charge of managing the schedule, managing the subs. And I was in charge of essentially the administration. So handling all the money, handling the insurance, the sort of day-to-day operations of the business itself. And he was in, in charge of construction. Unfortunately, that didn't work out for us and, and we had to let him go. That was a, a very tough decision, but a necessary one. Uh, so currently, yeah, it's just me. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, because, you know, if you have one business, why can't you, you know, have two? Um, or three yeah. or four. Or three, you know, it's yeah. Like, yeah, sky's the limit. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this because, go ahead. I was going to say, we're just making alphabet soup over here. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, so um, one of the things that I've I've always, I love my husband to death and I think he's great and he's wonderful with numbers, but never in a million years would I let him be part of my business. I hate to say that. I just need that separation. And uh, I, how is it working with her? Do you, how do you, how do you do business and then go home and separate that from, from personal um, without things just sort of bleeding over? Yeah, it's, it's really tricky. And for, for the first couple of years, uh, it worked really well. For the most part, my wife and I, we have, I guess, the uncanny ability to kind of separate the two. But what invariably happens is, you know, we, we would go out on you know, like date night and, you know, we'd be, we'd be at dinner together and, you know, we'd spend almost the entire time just talking about work, (laughs) you know, whether it was, whether it was architecture or construction, you know, we just, it was, 
it's not that we didn't enjoy that time together, but it was, we just kind of suddenly realized, oh my God, all we're doing is talking about business 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And obviously that's not a healthy way to sustain a relationship. So, you know, my wife still helps out with the administration, but as a, she's not an employee, she's a, uh, she's actually a subcontractor and she has her own side business that deals with sort of office management for, for small businesses. So we're, we're basically like one of her clients now, which at least for me offers a certain degree of mental separation between the two. But yeah, at some point we had to kind of sit down and talk and, and basically make the agreement that, Hey, if we're out to dinner together, or if we're at like a social function, it's not business. Like we're together. Work is not a subject that we're allowed to talk about. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really the best way that we've been able to, to maintain that, uh, those two relationships, you really yeah. do have to keep them mentally separate. So th- th- this this isn't on the, the the questions, but like on the on the list of questions. But it, to me, because Faye is very much in the same way, she's separate but still kind of helping out quite a bit uh, on on the just the business administration type stuff. But at a certain point, how? how do you, we're, we're still trying to find the balance of having a life and running and starting and running a business because you're working in the same environment as, as your spouse. You're, you're there. I, I have found that there have been times where we'll just be staying up late, just talking business. And, and it is not because we don't have other things to do. We, we very much could, but how have you been able to balance out the business with the personal side of things? Because like when we go talk to, talk to friends, we're like, Oh, what's new with you. And, you know, you, you can talk about family stuff. You, you know, there's always stuff that's going yeah. on with the kids. There's always, you know, but, but. Invariably it, it always comes back around to the business. That's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of time that you're putting in. It's a lot of, yep. Well, to be able to talk about other things, because I'm assuming you do yeah. want to talk about other things. Yeah. <laughs> so this, the simple answer to that is probably not well. <laughs> uh, uh, I, think, I think over time, we've, we've kind of learned together just to, to set some, some reasonable boundaries, especially as you describe, like when we were out in, um, in public at social functions. Now, you know, obviously, you know, me as an architect and you know, I also sit on several city boards and, and commissions. And so our, our life is very kind of public, you know, it's, it's necessary for us to be out, you know, whether it's, whether it's networking or just, you know, being a, involved in the community, doing charity work, that sort of thing. Not only is it something that we love to do, but it's as a business owner, it's kind of necessary just to be part of your community. So yeah, it's, it's difficult I won't, I won't shy away from that. We, we definitely struggle with that balance, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, when you're, when your spouse is a part of your, your business, you just have to be able to have those very candid conversations and say, okay, honey, you know what, tonight we're not talking about business at all. We're just going to be together. And even if you just sit there quietly, because you're like, holy shit, we actually don't have anything to talk about. That's fine. The words will come. And it, it, you know, so we've, we've sort of worked at it enough that I think we, uh, we've achieved balance through trial and error. That sounds about right. I mean, it's, it's, I, I think 
for, for both Matthew and I, you know, our spouses do different things. I mean, Say is in more finance and my husband's more, I won't say finance, but a lot of deals with a lot of numbers and HR consulting stuff. And we at least have that kind of separation. He's not even talking about architecture, most likely because, well, if he starts talking about, I've seen the spreadsheets. If he starts talking about the numbers, I'm passing out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, uh, so that's, that's really good. I mean, and, and I think I, I did have a, um, one of my former business partners, she and her husband were both architects. He worked worked and works for a large firm and she does not. She's you know still independent. And, you know, I'm like, you both are in architecture. How do you deal with that? You know, because you come home and you're talking your architecture. She's talking her architecture. And I'm like, okay, no, no, not in a million years. So one of the things I did want to ask you because, and, and, for everyone who wants to start a business and, and run a business, you know, you, you do what seems like a lot for a small practice. Um, one of the things that kind of got me was that you're doing work in other states. And mm-hmm. I do have a colleague in Ohio who is licensed in 26 states. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he handles it because he has design teams essentially all over the U.S., so if he has a project in another state, he'll reach out to his the guy who might he might have there locally, say, put together the project team, tell me what it's going to cost, and and build it out from what, there. What, what's his name? Peter McCray. Oh yeah, I know Peter. He, I'm actually the liaison. The oh, small oh that's right. Exchange, the PMK liaison. That's right. That's right. Uh, yeah, he and I actually had a very long conversation about his. Uh, his practice model and yeah. I'm adopting a lot of what he's done over the years yeah. with my practice. Yeah. He's, uh, he's a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's fascinating. I mean, he's like, well, I'm in Australia for a month and you know, I'm just doing my red lines <laughs> yeah. and, and sending them back <laughs> off to whoever and then going out and exploring. Um, yep. That's right. Yeah. So, um, but for right now, I mean, you're, you're working in multiple, multiple States. Do you, like reach out to the local architects or do you guys tend to keep everything kind of in house? And because you're licensed there already, do you tend to keep things more within the firm? So everything is, everything is in house for a couple of years. I was working for a developer out of Portland that had two very large projects, one in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, and another one in Lawrence, uh, Massachusetts. Lawrence is about, I don't know, 45 minutes North of Boston's right on the Massachusetts, New Hampshire border. And uh, they were all affordable housing projects, which is, you know, something that I'm, I'm very passionate about. If you, gosh, if you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, that's pretty much, or uh, not Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, that's pretty much all I post mm-hmm. is, uh, is news about affordable housing and, you know, the, the absolute crisis that the United States is in right now. So that's, that's kind of what got me started uh, working in multiple states. And it sort of grew from there. So you know, basically I seek out opportunities where they, you know, wherever they come. And if I'm, if I'm able to help, uh, I will being based out of Little Rock, Arkansas, I'm essentially smack dab in the middle of the United States. So I can literally get anywhere in the country within four hours, which allows me a a great deal of flexibility. You know, the simple answer to the question is yes, we try to keep everything in house, but I've also got 
a number of relationships with architects in a lot of the states that I am licensed in. So Larry, you're down in Texas. I'm licensed in Texas. And I know you you even had a, a client that was coming up here to Arkansas and you you sent them our way. And you know, I would I would love to, you know, one day be able to extend that, you know, that relationship down into Texas and, you know, either work with you or partner with you or send work your way, that kind of thing. So for me, you know, being licensed in multiple states is is more about being able to leverage relationships than it is about, you know, just kind of moving in and, and taking, taking projects away, if that, uh, you know, if that makes sense. You know, I think architects get kind of trapped in this model of every other architect around me is my competition rather than every other architect around me is a potential ally. And I think that's, uh, you know, that's, a problem within the profession that we can all address, especially as small firm architects, because, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a sole proprietor and you're a sole proprietor, two is better than one, three is better than two and so on and so forth. So if we, if we stop thinking of each other as, as competition and um, start thinking of each other as, as allies, I think the, the profession as a whole can be lifted back to to a place of respect that, you know, we probably haven't seen in the last hundred years. Yeah. When, when we started our last practice, it was January, 2008. So, you know, our timing couldn't have been better. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. timing. Oh my uh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. But, but one of the things that we was very essential for us was that, you know, as, as crappy of a situation as we were in, we knew other people were too. And we had that attitude that anything that we know that we can share, we want to share. And, but at the same time, you know, you're dealing with a lot of people who are like, oh, I can't tell you anything about what we're doing because that's competition and I don't want to lose a project or, you know, it's that sort of notion that everyone's up against each other. Yeah, so, it's, it's yeah. very much the, the, wrong, the wrong mental attitude to have. Uh, yeah. I can't, I really can't stress that enough because, I mean, I've worked for... I've worked for years. I mean, gosh, if I counted all the firms that I've worked for in the last almost 20 years, I mean, it would be, you know, at least close to a dozen. And, you know, not a single one of them do I consider as my competition. Like one of my, one of my first projects that I signed after I hung my own shingle came from my old boss who I had just, you know, I had just quit his firm, but here he is sending me work. And, you know, it's because he knows, hey, I, I do a good job. And this is a this is a project that's that's right for me. It's not one that he wants to take on because it's a little too small. I mean, that's that that's the way it's supposed to be. Uh, yeah. I, I, and I, like I said, I just never understood the whole, well, you know, I can't tell you or I can't help you. We did our own happy hour for six and a half years. And very rarely would another architect show up. I mean, there'd be 140 people oh. and we'd be the only architects in the room. Uh, wow, that's awesome. Because Matthew can attest to that. Oh, I, I, well, I was one of the few that showed up. Yeah, that's how we actually met. Matthew showed up fresh out of school, actually. Yeah. So, so recently, uh, the the local um, uh, central section of AIA here in Arkansas did a uh, did a what they termed a firm crawl. So there were there were three different firms that they that they went to. And it was, it was all uh, young architects, you know, visiting each firm. And so mine was first. So, you know, it was like, gosh, there must've been 50 people in my office and 
if you've ever seen my office, 50 people don't fit that well. But it was still, you know, it was a great time. Like I got to meet a lot of people, you know, a lot of other, you know, young architects and interns and, and even some, some older architects that were, that were on the tour and, you know, got to like talk about what I do and why I do what I do and all this other stuff. And then like, as everybody was leaving to go to the other firm, I was like, well, can I go? And they were like, yeah, come on. And so I, I literally hopped on the bus. Like they had a bus to, you know, to schlep all these, because obviously we were drinking and nobody should be driving. And uh, so, you know, we ended up at, at, you know, essentially another one of my competitor firms. And then, you know, the very last firm was another competitor firm and I'm, you know, just hanging out with everybody and we're all having fun. And, you know, that's, that's what architecture should be. It should really be a community where we, where we share our knowledge to, to elevate the practice of architecture rather than trying to, to keep it within, you know, within our own four walls. Like that's, that's not going to serve anybody. Well, so, so you already do architecture, you do construction. And I know just from following you on Instagram that your, your next step is most likely going to be development. Um, How do you see that actually transitioning? And is it going to be more about affordable housing? Are you looking at more commercial development? Are you looking at residential development? What's the, what's the thought process? So definitely the focus is going, the primary focus is going to be on affordable housing. Um, like I said earlier, that's a, that's a big passion of mine. A few years ago, I, I sort of stumbled across the housing first study that HUD published. It was five or six years ago. And it's, it's essentially a, an, an academic study that determined the single greatest predictor of success in an individual is housing. And this includes those that are experiencing homelessness, you know, those with mental disabilities, those with physical disabilities, everything across the board. Providing stable, secure housing for individuals is the single greatest predictor to the success of that person, bar none. Now, that's not to say that you don't then have to connect them to services, whether that be social security, Medicare, Medicaid, mental health services, uh, job training, whatever it is. But those things are already in place. It's really plugging people into stable and affordable housing first that gets them to that next step. And so that's, that's something that I'm really passionate about. And, and so in development, that is my primary focus. But every business wants to make money. So I want to also do multifamily development, whether that's, um, you know, single family rehabs for rental or duplexes, triplexes, quadplex, whatever, you know, the sky's the limit, but the, the development side of everything is really, is really the natural progression. I think of, of being an architect. I think we've all as architects had that kind of thought you know, usually very late at night when we're under a deadline and we're kind of miserable and stressed. We're like, my God, this job would be so much easier if I didn't have clients. And that's, yeah, yeah, you guys get it. I know you do. And so that, you know, that's really where it came from. Not, not in a, you know, I say that sort of tongue in cheek, even though it's true, but at the end of the day, I want to be, I want to be my own client. I want to design, build and own the projects that are really uh, that I'm really passionate about, and that that's that's kind of where that where that came from. And you know, we haven't done any yet, but 
I think we've got we've got some traction on a couple of projects, and hopefully in the next year or two, we'll uh, we'll buy, uh, renovate, and rent you know our very first development project, and you know we'll just kind of snowball that into hopefully many more. I believe you have just described most architects like dream scenarios like like for me like did you did you see the the billion dollar lottery that somebody in Maine won recently yeah so so Faye Faye and I talked about that briefly because we we put in 10 bucks towards you know seeing what what the heck (laughs) but but at the end of that as we were talking about it and I guess this would be one of those conversations that you know happens off business hours so that uh, a good point um but we were talking about I was like well what would you do if you won that billion dollars? And Faye's like, well, I would just quit and start immediately just traveling the world and doing nothing else. And I'm like, well, I'd still be an architect. I'd still be an architect. <laughs> I'd, I'd still go out. I'd go out, buy my own land, like bulldoze whatever was there and just build my own whatever. And, and, and so, so to hear you describing, oh yeah, we're, we're going to just start doing that. I was just like, you take so, the client out of the conversation. You take, yep. I mean, it's just. <laughs> so, but with that, there's a caveat. So there's a, there's an old expression. I can't remember who told me this is one of my old bosses, but he said, if you want to be a millionaire as an architect, start with 10 million. <laughs> and and yeah, in order, in, it, or, in order to make a, me, a large, a small fortune, you start with a large fortune. Yeah. Yeah. You start with a bigger fortune. And yeah. so it took, it took me a lot of years to understand what he was really getting at. And and once I, once I understood it, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Architects are naturally visionaries. So we, you know, we see the some, well, not sometimes, a lot of the times we see the world through very rose colored glasses. We think we see things as, as being design uh, challenges only rather than financial challenges. And, you know, it's somebody else's job to sort of come up with financing. And I think if architecture is really going to elevate itself back to the role of the master builder, development has to be a necessary part of that. And we have to learn how to make projects work in dollars and cents. And so that's, that's something that I started doing you know, several years ago with my, my development company is I just, I started doing pro formas and learning how to, how to make the, how to make the money work on a project, even if they were completely fictitious, but just understand where, you know, if you're, if you're doing a multifamily project, like what are your rent roles? You know, what's the cost of the land? What's the cost of development? What's the development fee? Because that's something that a lot of people sort of leave out when they get into real estate development is, Hey, you've got to pay somebody to manage this project. If it's you, that's great. You still have to pay yourself. Let's be honest. Nobody can or wants to work for free. You know, then there's the contractor fees. There's the, you know, there's like utility connections. There's all these, these pieces and parts that go into the work that we do that as architects, a lot of times we just, we just don't even get exposure to it. But I think if we, if we can, can take the initiative to, to expose ourselves to it, then our projects will be more profitable. Our clients 
obviously will be happier because they're making more money and it will be easier for the contractor to to build well no that you know that makes sense about the about the you know learning about performance and learning about development you know, my, one of my big big beefs with architecture school is they don't teach you anything about business they want to talk to you about yeah design and how how buildings yep. feel and what the space is about but no one ever talks to you about the business side of the, the profession and so so many people get into owning a practice and they have no idea how things actually work. I had a conversation with a guy probably six years ago and he had been a partner. He had two other partners in this firm. And when they were doing things like shareholder distributions, well, you know, one guy would take one amount, one guy would take another amount and one guy would take a different amount because he didn't need as much. Well, when they got ready to sell the business, the IRS had a lot to say about that. Uh, yes. And, and it was yep. just horrible for them because all of a sudden there's all these tax implications. Um, yep. It has so to be yeah. equal based on your percentage of ownership in the company. Yep. And they just didn't, you know, they didn't know it, but because, because we are taught, taught that and the same thing about development, we're not taught anything about development because I don't think yep. colleges think that that's a real possibility or they just don't want to bother with it. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's but like I said, it's one of the things that's always gotten me about school. There's no business aspect presented to yeah. you. Um, Honestly, I think it's, I think it's because academia is simply that. I think you're you're learning sort of a a basic kit of parts. You know, you, you mm-hmm. you've got a very limited sort of toolbox that you take out into the world, and then what you do with that toolbox for the most part is up to you, which is fine. Like you know, like you described earlier, there's some there's some people that you know they just they don't have that that entrepreneurial spirit, and they they don't want to be a firm owner. They they just want to kind of rise through the ranks in, in someone else's firm. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. You know, there's, there's definitely a place for that. But, but I think there is that sort of cadre of us, you know, of small firm owners that, that want, to, want to build something. Don't, we don't want to be HOK. We don't want to be SOM. We don't want to be, um, you know, we don't want to be Gensler or RSNH or any of these other gigantic international firms. We just want to sort of carve a place within our our little sphere of influence and do good work that's gonna that's gonna impact the the larger communities that we that we serve. I think in order to do that, yeah, we need to there there are some additional tools beyond the the collegiate experience that we're only gonna learn under our own steam. All right. Well, so um we're going to wrap things up here in a second, but I wanted to do sort of a speed round. I was going to throw some things Uh-oh. out at you and see how <laughs> see how you do. Um, as, as you can tell, as you can tell, I'm I'm not terribly quick. <laughs> well, no. So, well, this hopefully and, these, these are easy. Enter at your you. own risk. Yeah, of course, especially especially since you're sipping scotch. I'm assuming bourbon. Oh no, yo, oh, it's bourbon, baby. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So so here we go. So. And and some of this is just based on the fact that I follow you on Instagram. Um, what's right. your favorite? What's your favorite cigar? Oh, see, it's not quick. <laughs> it's not quick. Um, no, I was. You're smoking one right cigar. now, so. I am, and this is uh, this is a. Um, let's see. This is. I've, I've actually got the wrapper right in front of me. This is a Chupacabra, which is by um, Esteban Carrera, and it's. 
I would say, yes, it's probably one of my favorites. Um, it's a much larger cigar. You know, if we were recording this, you could see it's, it's about a 60 ring gauge um, cigar and it's a very dark Maduro. So it's very spicy. It's, um, it's great for after dinner. It's, you know, it's like the end of the day, you've had a hard day. You just want something to kind of mellow you out. Goes well with the bourbon. Oh, it does. Yes. <laughs> so I was going to also ask, what's your favorite wine? Cause I see you with wine occasionally. What's your favorite? My favorite wine. Um, besides besides so the one that has alcohol in it. Yeah. Yeah. They all, they all do. Luckily. Um, <laughs> my favorite wine. So we were in, uh, we took a family vacation to Italy in, uh, uh, last March and we stayed mainly in the Campania region, which is, uh, it's like Rome, Sorrento, like the Amalfi coast, that, that kind of, uh, Southern area near Capri. And the Campania wines are, I think by far some of the most delicious that I've ever had in my life. Alianico is currently my favorite grape varietal by far. Well, so what's your favorite vacation spot? Where's the spot that you go again and again? Or do you have one? So every year as a family, we go to the Panhandle of Florida. Uh, we stay at Santa Rosa Beach. We stay in a, a neighborhood called, um, oh, shit, now I'm going to forget. Uh, <laughs> of course. It's right, across, it's right across from a development called The Hub which is on 30A uh, in okay. Florida. And luckily enough, in that, in that development of the hub, there's a little cigar bar, a uh, little cigar lounge that I go to uh, every year. So that's, that's by far our favorite sort of continual vacation spot. We do it every year. Do you think you'll ever retire? Retirement's a funny word. Simple answer is no. Complicated answer is yes, but not the way everybody thinks. I do actually plan to retire in 10 years, so... Oh, good for that's you. my that's my goal like it like i said my my retirement plan is let it it it's not what most people think of okay well i think uh matthew do you have anything else do you want to ask i mean you've got multiple businesses when does your day start and when does it end uh well like most people the day usually starts about uh, you know 7 30 8 o'clock uh, it usually ends hopefully about 5 36 but unfortunately these days that, you know, any day ending in day is a work day, okay. you know, time off comes, comes at a premium. It always comes with a price. I at least try to try to find some sort of balance uh, in everything that I do. I, I, I take Saturdays off. I, I refuse to work on a Saturday unless I absolutely mm -hmm. have to. And yeah. Sun, Sunday mean, is my day. Sunday is yeah. my day. Yeah. I'm just like, nope, nope. Need, need a day for myself. So Thank you for joining us. Thank you for doing the interview with us. We really appreciate it. If somebody wants to contact you, what's the best way to do it? Best way is probably via email. It's uh, just info at roguearch.com, info at R-O-G-U-E-A-R-C-H.com. Or <laughs> I almost hate to say it this way, but if you just Google me, you're probably going to get me. <laughs> Don't Google rogue architecture because you'll get everybody else and you. And, and that's well, but you'll probably hard. get me first. So, <laughs> well, well, hope so. Hope so. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you guys know that if you need to reach me, it's Larry at spotteddogarchitecture.com or spotteddogarch on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at addingarchitecture.com. So, I think that's where we're going to wrap it up for the day 
thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time.